0: 10-year-old children can predict who will win an election with 70% accuracy, but the reason why is probably not what you expect. You'll learn about that and more in today's Nudge Podcast with me, Phil Agnew, but first, here's another podcast I'd recommend. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So, listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. So here's a question to kick off the podcast today. How long does it take for the Earth to spin around the sun? How long do you think it takes? That's what YouTuber Veritasium asked a bunch of people back in 2017, and most of them said this. What do you reckon, Kelsey? 24 hours obviously a day yes see thinking requires cognitive energy but there's only so much energy we can use so where possible our brains try to avoid thinking instead our brains opt for shortcuts heuristics and, and a reliance on that system one mode of thinking not the more thoughtful system two if those terms are new to you, by the way, don't worry, my guest will explain all today. And just to check, you were thinking yourself, how long does it take for the Earth to spin around the sun? Well, it doesn't take a day.
1: Hey, the Earth doesn't take one day to get around the sun. It takes only a year.
0: watch <laughs> it. In today's episode, my guest Zoe Chance will explain why this happens, why we tend not to think and why we rely on our subconscious to make decisions. But first, here's Zoe introducing herself.
1: Hi, my name is Zoe Chance. I'm a professor at Yale School of Management where I teach the most popular class. It's called Mastering Influence and Persuasion. And I'm really passionate about helping people become more influential so that they can better do all of the things that they care about. And I've written a book called Influence is Your Superpower, which has become an international bestseller. It's being published in 28 different languages. And this is this chunk of the virtual book tour that I'm doing right now, getting to talk to other people who are excited about these topics like you phil i love that you're a nerd on behavioral science and i've been looking forward to this podcast
0: so to kick off zoe will walk through the two modes of thinking system one the fast unconscious part the system that those aussies used when they said it took a day for the world to rotate around the sun and then system two the slow deliberate thought that eventually made the aussies correct themselves
1: Most people on earth have never heard of system one and system two, or even behavioral economics. And I think you because you're listening to this particular podcast, you probably have. And you might have noticed when you are talking to other people about it, that the framework of system one and system two is not very sticky. It's easy to forget what is system one, what is system two. So when I'm teaching behavioral economics, I use the analogy of a gator and a judge. The gator represents system one. And I choose this particular character because most people don't know gators are, alligators are probably the most efficient creatures on the planet. They've been around 38 million years. They have a brain the size of a walnut, body weighs up to half a ton, and they can actually go up to three years without eating anything at all. So although we think of them, many of us as being these vicious, scary creatures, and I wouldn't want to get too close to one, the dominant response by an alligator to all of the stimulus in the world is nothing. They ignore it completely, which is exactly how we respond to almost all influence attempts. However, when they do respond, it's instantaneous, just like us being very quick with system one to make snap judgments. The gator is also the gatekeeper to system two, which I talk about as the judge being conscious, slow, deliberate, effortful, and like a human judge trying to be objective, trying to make rational decisions, but heavily biased, just like people. And system two, the judge is biased primarily by system one.
0: System 1, what Zoe calls the gator, is the fast, unconscious part of our brain that makes decisions without thinking. It's automatic and effortless, and it makes 98% of our decisions. System 2, the judge, is slower, more deliberate in thought. It requires effort, self-awareness, and logic. It's tiring to use, and only makes up around 2% of our thinking. The gator is calling most of the shots. And for most of us, this is a little scary. Surely you'd want to be conscious of most of the decisions that you make. But our gator brain isn't useless. It's powerful and often very reliable. Here's Zoe sharing a study to highlight just that.
1: A lot of people don't understand how powerful the gator is compared to the judge. And it's because we experience ourselves as being semi-rational, but only the conscious part of our mind is perceivable, right? And this vast, powerful, and largely unconscious part goes completely under the radar. So we don't know how much the gator is influencing our judgments and decisions, even in meaningful ways, even in areas concerning life and death, like do I decide to be an organ donor? Or even in important societal realms like elections. And one study in particular that I found interesting was um, a study by done by Alex Todorov at Princeton. And he was looking at predicting election results by just flashing faces of candidates for a fraction of a second for participants in the study. And he's not asking you to predict. He's just asking which of these people looks more competent. And the person that you select more competent based on this gator snap. Judgment predicted with 70% accuracy who then went on to win the election. Now, that's crazy enough. The even crazier part is John Antonakis in Switzerland did a follow up study with children. And he was asking the kids, not who's more competent, they don't even know what that means. He asked the kids, who would you prefer to be the captain of your boat? And the kids chose, again, with similar 70% accuracy, the election winner to be the captain of their boat.
0: Sari shares more examples of how powerful our gator brain is in her book. For example, when college students were first asked to evaluate a professor's competence based on just a silent six-second clip of the professor teaching, their immediate suggestions strongly predicted how the professors fared in the end-of-year evaluations. What's clear is two things. First, our gator brain makes most of our decisions. And second, that's not always a bad thing, because more often than not, it's quite accurate. But how does this apply to business? How can we apply these findings at work?
1: The gist of it as I see it is that a lot of decisions are ultimately made by gator snap judgments even when we don't realize it, And there's a vast amount of work on uh, what researchers call thin slices. So that includes some of the studies that I just mentioned. Also studies like another really interesting one by Nalini Ambadi, who was looking at surgeons and who was sued for malpractice and who wasn't sued for malpractice. And she had participants come into her lab and listen to a short clip of their voice. I think it was 10 seconds. And they predicted which surgeons had been sued for malpractice with reasonable accuracy. But the absolutely crazy part is that the voice clips were garbled so that they couldn't even hear the words. They could only hear the tone of voice. And what this means is that when we hear somebody talking to us with, say, a patronizing or impatient or unempathetic tone of voice, our gator snap judgment is, I don't like this person, I don't trust this person, and that's what's predicting, if something goes wrong, am I going to sue them for malpractice, even more than what's the actual outcome of the surgery they performed. It's nuts.
0: Suri so shares more examples of how powerful our gator brain is in her book. For example, when college students were first asked to evaluate a professor's competence based on just a silent six-second clip of the professor teaching, their immediate suggestions strongly predicted how the professors fared in the end-of-year evaluations. What's clear is two things. First, our geyser brain makes most of our decisions. And second, that's not always a bad thing because more often than not, it's quite accurate. But how does this apply to business? How can we apply these findings at work?
1: Listeners for this particular podcast will be interested in a follow-up study run by the same researcher on thin slices, looking at clips of, well, listening to (laughs) clips of sales reps talking to customers. And they were able to predict which sales reps were more successful, again, by the tone of the voice That's right, in that study,
0: just undergraduate students were able to identify very highly rated salespeople from a big sample of regional sales managers using just three 20-second clips of just their voices. This tells us that a salesperson's tone of voice is clearly very important. Get the tone right and you're more likely to sell. So, should salespeople artificially tweak their tone to be more sales-friendly? Zoe doesn't think so.
1: And I don't think that we all need to listen to this and then say, okay, I need to carefully modulate my tone of voice. That's something that comes naturally when we're relating to another human being in a way that has them feel connected, paid attention to, listened to, respected. So the easy way to have the other person feel respected on the other side is that we actually respect them and the easiest way to have them feel liked is that we actually like them. I had a friend this is getting out of science domain um but this is it was a close friend of my mom's and she was a, like a mentor when I was a teenager. Her husband was a diplomat and he was very cool. He was like a James Bond kind of guy and he knew how to do crazy James Bond driving and things. And because he's a diplomat at a high level and fancy international circles, as his wife, she's going to a lot of parties and hosting a lot of parties and meeting a lot of people, some of whom are not easy to get along with. And her job is make people feel liked, respected, comfortable, right? So that her husband can do a good job. And what she told me is the most important thing that you can do in life is find something to like about every single person you meet. And she said, even if it's just their earrings and you don't have to say it, you can, but you don't have to. But if you have that attitude of looking for something to like, that's the easiest way to have that person feel comfortable, respected, liked you. And some of your listeners will know, but not all of them, that the two primary dimensions of social judgment are warmth and competence. And so this is why competence played a big role in the election outcomes. And this is also why warmth and liking plays a big role, even in situations like lawsuits. But when we look at warmth and competence, and we're talking about interpersonal interactions, like you and I talking right now, warmth is far more important. It's far more powerful and sticky, plays a bigger role. And so it's ironic That what we care about in general, more than having people like us, is having people respect us. So we do a lot of things to try to come across as competent. And if you think about meeting someone, going to an interview, presenting in a meeting, it's very easy to focus on competence, but neglect warmth and accidentally alienate the person on the other side. If they don't like you, they actually don't care how competent you are. And warmth happens first. So it's far more far more important. Best thing you can do is like them, not worry about if they like you.
0: When it comes to being liked, warmth trumps competence every time. You'll never make sales or make friends if you just show competence. You'll need to show warmth. In fact, showing warmth is more important. Zoe says you can't fake warmth, but there are strategies to help. As Zuri says, finding something to like in every person you meet is a really good way to start. Even if you don't like the person, focusing on one thing you do like, it could be their hairstyle, their tone of voice, their selection of books on their bookshelf, whatever it is, if you focus on that one thing, it'll make you appear warmer. Hearing this reminded me of the wisdom in Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. In the book, Dale writes, you can make more friends in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get other people interested in you. There are studies cited in Zoe's book that back this up. Professor Alison Wood Brooks found that when people are getting to know each other, those who asked more questions are better liked. To Dale Carnegie's point, there is no better way to show your interest in someone than to ask them questions. And asking questions, according to this study, is a bit of a superpower. Speed daters who ask more questions are more likely to get second dates. These speed daters were liked even more if some of those follow up questions were perceived as expressing a deep interest. So, you know, not just asking the question and not listening, asking the question and actually listening. See, you can't fake warmth, but all of us can come across as warmer by being genuinely interested in others. The reason why harks right back to the gator brain. We make snap judgments on others. We'll decide whether we like them, not through conscious thought, but through shortcuts and heuristics. Now this has its benefits, attracting us to genuinely warm people, but there are issues as well. After this quick break, Zoe will talk through how these biases can have a negative effect on how women are perceived. But first, a quick 60-second break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today.
1: A lot of women I share this with are upset by what I'm about to tell you. And I guess that includes me too. When we're talking about warmth and competence, regardless of your gender, warmth is more important than competence. However, it's even more important for women than it is for men because women can get backlash for being perceived as not warm. So it's a particular risk for women when we're focusing on trying to prove our competence. If we neglect warmth, then we can get called all kinds of gender-specific B-words, like bossy and other ones that you can think of. So this is why women get criticized in these really, Cringy ways like we get told to smile. Executives at highest levels and biggest companies get coached to smile. I hate that. And I'm not telling you, listeners, that you have to smile. I'm just sharing with you that there's a gender bias that when we are not expressing warmth, even more for us women than for men, people will not like us. And if they don't like us, it doesn't matter. If they respect us. So, this kind of advice to be likable. I had a friend a while ago who was coached to bring cookies to work because people thought she was scary. She's a leader in a big company and they're telling her to bake cookies. And she was so furious. And I don't blame her. I was furious on her behalf. You don't have to bake cookies, you don't have to fake smile. But what all of us can do very effectively is Try to find something to like about the people you meet, the people you're talking to, and then all of those other behaviours, the unconscious body language and everything else will come naturally.
0: Our gator brain makes snap decisions on nothing more than gut instinct. A lot of the time this is foolproof, helping us pick correct election candidates and spot doctors who have been sued for malpractice but all too often it enforces biases that might be sexist or racist. Now, it's no good saying I'm not a misogynist because it is impossible to stop these snap decisions. Acknowledging your biases and engaging your judge or your system two mode of thinking is a much smarter way of approaching these biases. Now, this can get complex with interpersonal relationships, but for businesses and for marketers, it remains fairly simple. Dan Ariely, in his book Predictably Irrational, has shown how our gator brain encourages irrational purchasing decisions. He found that serving coffee out of a fancy looking container genuinely makes it taste better when compared to the same coffee served out of a plastic Nescafe tub. He found that menus which contain more descriptions about the food, like pan fried sea bass with triple cooked chips, sell better than simple descriptions like fish and chips. And as you may remember from previous episodes, champagne served in a flute glass is ranked as more flavoursome than the exact same champagne served out of a plastic cup. Our subconscious calls the shots, deciding what coffee we buy, what doctor we choose, and what partner we find attractive. Oh, and next time you're asked how often the Earth rotates around the sun, take a second to think about it. Okay, folks, that's all we have time for today. If you're on the hunt for something to listen to next, go and check out episode 11 of Nudge. I released this episode three years ago, so heaps of you haven't heard it, but it's the perfect follow-up for today. On that show, I share what makes someone more convincing than others. It's a cracking show with loads of content just like this, so I think you'll like it. There's a link to that show in the show notes of this show if you're interested in checking it out. Now, I really loved chatting with Zoe Chance on the show today. I really recommend picking up a copy of Zoe's book, Influence is Your Superpower, not only because it's one of the best behavioural science books of the past few years, but also because 50% of the profits from the book go to the environmental charity 350.org. The charity is standing up to the fossil fuel industry, campaigning to stop all new coal, oil and gas projects, which is something that hopefully a lot of us can get behind. So, So to pick up a copy of Zoe's book, click on the link in the show notes. While you're in the show notes you will also find a link to my newsletter. Please do subscribe to that because every Monday I send a marketing tip straight to your inbox and I send all new information about the show including when new episodes go live and any projects that I might be running. Okay I've been Phil Agnew your host and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Nudge.